right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the faculties to be able to understand it, comprehend it, and grow from it. Father, we're so blessed to be here this evening, to fellowship this way, to break bread together. We do just pray for those in the congregation that can't be here for a variety of reasons, that you bring them and return them back to the fold in good timing, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope. Most of all, we just express our gratitude towards you and towards our Lord and Savior for his sacrifice 2,000 years ago. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, part 64, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Um, my apologies. Uh, I was trying to get uh, notification of uh, Monica's new ministry out to the, um, to the uh, 500 or so uh, members of the blog newsletter. Um, and the, this week's blog went out with it. So it's out right now. And some of you are like, I know, because I read it as soon as it comes in. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this week's blog is especially encouraging. There's a reason why I'm bringing it up. Um, up here on the board, it's called Getting Out of Bed in the Morning. You can probably imagine what it means, what it actually is getting at. Just what does it mean? To get out of bed in the morning, where do you find your motivation, uh, your encouragement, your purpose? Um, read it, please. Read it. So I know the good labor that I put into it will be consumed and digested by those that I love. It is a labor of love, believe it or not. Right? Tammy will attest, I'm up, when did I write that one? Four in the morning? Probably. Yeah, four in the morning wakes me up. He's like, hey, go write a blog. I'm like, it's four in the morning. Yeah, get up. So I have to go make myself a coffee so I can wake up. And I start writing at four in the morning. Sometimes it's 3.30. Sometimes I drag. He's got me up at 3.30. I'm like, do I have to? And he says, yeah. I was up probably four o'clock this morning writing this message. It's just a labor of love. You should take advantage of it. Um, if it means that much to me, the one who's ordained to serve you, there might be something about it. <laughs> there might be something worth looking at. Just saying. And, you know, just as a point of review, I mean, that's all I ever want. I want you all to grow. Uh, that is a shepherd's perspective. So let's do a quick review of this concept. Go to Philippians 1, 1. Philippians 1, verse 1. Because I think it's easy to become familiar with this office, with this person even. And I'm not teaching uh, on my own behalf. Just know that. I'm teaching from Holy Scripture because this is what's in Holy Scripture. 
and it needs to get into you. Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So here comes the heart of Paul. Now, I would imagine the way I understand Paul, what I can glean from Holy Scripture, um, is that he was a pretty tenacious individual. He probably, maybe in some ways, would have come off as abrasive, maybe. Uh, maybe it's just sort of, you know, that guy that is a little bit in your face. But once you get to know him, you know that he's in your face because he loves you. And it turns out you'd rather have that person every day of the week and twice on Sunday than the nice one that's in your face that doesn't care, give a care about you. Right? That was Paul, as I understand him. So he says, you know, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And as I've taught many times in the past, especially since the uh, gospel reload, which some of you are actually going through again, which is awesome, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is the crux of the New Testament epistles, remember. If you understand what the New Testament uh, epistles are about, they're either defending or confirming the gospel. But there's always a, a, a context wrapping itself around the defense or the confirmation. And so here it is in plain scripture, right? And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Obviously, Christ Jesus is our great shepherd, but this is one of his under-shepherds, Paul, saying, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love, listen, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You see it? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's why I put that slide up on the board. That's why I made that statement about, you know, it is a labor of love. It's to impart some knowledge and some wisdom into your soul through a vessel so that you can grow up. So that you do, that your love may bound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. What about Hebrews 12, 11, huh? Peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember that? 
What about the fruit of righteousness? Well, we know, we've studied this several times recently, that peace is one of the great elements, one of the great fruits, if you, if you want to put it that way. Right? Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Peace is front and center, Hebrews 12, 11, That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I ask you, just in that you know, short reading, in the first chapter of Philippians, do you see Paul's heart towards the church that he planted and apparently cared an awful lot about? Can you see it? I hope so. I hope you do. Do you see the love he had for them? I hope so. Do you see the motivation behind his tenacity to serve the Lord on their behalf? I hope so. This is what a good shepherd looks like. And so you should know that I'm not saying I'm anything like Paul, but you should know that I am motivated the same way Paul was. Honestly. It's not easy getting up at four in the morning. Right? And write, I don't know, 20 pages of notes. But if you have the proper motivation, it's not a problem. You do it with a certain joy set before you. So I want you to be as Paul wanted his congregation to be. Philippians 1.9 read, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's what I want for you. And that's why I do what I do. Out of love for him and out of love for you. To borrow from this week's blog, again, this is what gets me up in the morning. Knowing that I have purpose, knowing that, that he can have some impact through this ridiculous vessel. All right, 4 a.m. it is then. 4 a.m. it is. Whatever you want, Lord. I do get tired. That's true. And the details of life love to tempt me into starting my day with poor perspective. And that's what the blog was about. But all I have to think about is the magnitude of being an ordained shepherd and the opportunity to advance God's kingdom here on earth. And lo and behold, I'm sufficiently motivated. Again, this is what a good shepherd looks like. We have the perfect example, the great shepherd in Christ Jesus, of course. Go to John 10, verse 11. The perfect example is Christ Jesus, John 10, verse 11. You shouldn't forget these things. Not for Ed Collins, by the way. For the grace of God, right? As Paul would say in his humility, he said, I'm the least of them. I persecuted the church, right? But I worked more even. But it was the grace of God in me. So it's not about the shepherd so much as it is about the grace of God working through a humble servant. John 10, verse 11. Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd. And just so you know, in the original Greek, and I made sure to look this up, the exists in the original Greek. 
It's what we call the uh, definite article. And it sets him apart as unique, you see. If it was just, I am a good shepherd, there's a different connotation. He says, no, no, no. He says, I am the good shepherd. In other words, it's just me. I'm unique here. I am the good shepherd, right? I'm the model. I'm the great shepherd. It's me. So there's the definite article. The is there, and that makes a difference. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In other words, that guy has bad motivation. Jesus Christ, perfect motivation. You might even think, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured this cross, right? This guy, this phony, and you know for a fact there are a lot of phonies out there standing behind really nice pulpits with really big churches and tall steeples and all this kind of stuff. But their motivation is terrible. Their motivation is bad. They're the wolves dressed as sheep, right, in sheep clothing. Um, they're the hired hand. They don't care. They don't care about the sheep. That's completely self-serving. But that person, the phony, flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So, what's the point? Please remember that you have a shepherd that cares about you and wants you to carry a good, healthy, godly perspective around with you each and every day. That's why I wrote the blog. Getting up in the morning. It's all about perspective. And so that's what I want for you, and that's why I write those things. So please take advantage of it, because your deliverance, your daily salvation, in other words, depends on it. I don't want I want you to be in love. And when I say in love, do you know what I mean by that, right? In the sphere of love. I want you to be in love with life itself. I want you to be in love, not that garbage. Oh, I'm so in love. He's so handsome. She's so cute. Shut up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about romance. I'm talking about godly love, to be in love. Imagine yourself in the sphere of God's love. That's what I'm talking about. I actually think that's the proper way. If anybody in here is ever going to use the term, oh, I'm so in love, that should be how you use it. You can love your spouse or your kids or whatever. That's fine. But that whole I'm so in love thing, it's been romanticized to the nines and it's destroyed so many people. If you want to be in love, be in love. Abide in his love. If you want to be in love, that's what it means to be in love. Before that, you're not even capable of all the things you say you're capable of doing in that romantic relationship that you're so busy focusing on. Does that make sense? And the beauty about that is you can be completely single for the rest of your life and be totally in love. How's that? How's that? Seriously. In some ways, you might be in, in more love 
than someone who's actually married because you don't have any distractions and you never fall out of love. So you just focus on, what does the Bible say, uh, uh, you know, devoted, undying, uh, thank you, undistracted devotion to the Lord, right? Think about when Paul says, hey, I wish, listen, you should be like me, right? In uh, Corinthians, he says, you should just be like me. Because he says, you know, you got to get a wife, man. He goes, now you got to worry about a wife, right? And you go get a husband, now you got to worry about a husband. And he's not saying everybody should be single. That's not what he's saying. But he's giving perspective. You follow? And so single people, you shouldn't feel bad about being single. In some ways, it's a blessing because you get to spend all of your time in love, devoted to Christ. Just saying. Some people are like, Man, what did I get married for then? I'm just kidding. It's not like that. That's, that's a terrible response to what the Spirit just said. It's all about perspective. It's, if you want to know what it means to be in love, then that's what it is. Abide in His love. And you do not have to be romantically in love to be in love. To be head over heels in love. I know, shocker, right? Tell the world that. So with that said, let's get back to where we were on Sunday. As the Spirit's been alluding to, we have been getting back to the basics a bit. When I, I love it. I love, 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 love when we go back to the basics. Bringing the anchor of all biblical doctrines to the forefront, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was driven home hard with our recollecting that the, the gospel is actually a command. And you might say, why does he keep harping on this? Because it's important. It's important that you understand, first, what a command implies. And second, that the gospel is actually a command. And as we've learned over the past year or so, commands, if you get out of your adolescent way, Commands are actually a blessing. The ability to obey something from God, to be godly, is actually a blessing. An adolescent will go, oh, you're oppressive, it's no good, I hate it, I hate commands, I hate rules, you know, I'm going to break out. A mature person says, thank you, Lord, for another command, because now I know where to walk. I have light on that walk I'm on. I can see where I'm going. I know where not to step. I know how not to step. You follow? You begin loving commands. You begin reading your Bible looking for them and clinging to them because they, you know your daily salvation depends on your obedience to them. In the absence of light, there's what? Dark. Good luck walking through this world in darkness. You are going to fall and be all banged up and bruised and be in pain. Any light is good light, right? So he's been bringing the basics back, and the primitive basic is the gospel. And he started opening up this can by saying, remember, it's a command. The gospel is a command. It's not a nice to have. God's not on his knees pleading. He's not begging that way. It's not that emaciated Jesus that everybody likes to talk about. You know, maybe I'll invite him in, maybe I won't. 
You know that thing? Yeah, that's not it. It's a command. The sovereign, holy God of the universe says, believe. As we've been noting, anytime there's a command on the table, there are a slew of implications. For example, a command demands obedience and carries the very substance for righteous judgment with it. In other words, as soon as there's a command on the table and you go, yep, I see it, you are now responsible to it. God now holds you responsible to that command because now you've perceived it, you've seen it, you've taken it in. Again, a command demands obedience and carries the very substance for righteous judgment with it. We know this from Holy Scripture. For example, go to uh, Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. We'll see this in Holy Scripture. Slightly different context, but the principle is the same. Romans 5, verse 12. <clears throat> Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but... Sin is not counted where there is no law. You see, you, know, you can't break a law that you don't know about. You follow? And so God gave us the law, or gave them the law in context there, and they broke it. They transgressed. That's what a transgression is. So you see, a command or law implies judgment against it. As soon as it's present, along comes righteous judgment because now there's a bar, there's a line in the sand, there's a thing, an object that you can be convicted by. Right? So, for example, to break a command is to transgress. I'm just going to borrow from McDonald up here on Romans 5.13 for the sake of perspective. I just like the way he said it. Although there was sin during that time, in other words, before the law was given, there was no transgression because transgression is the violation of a known law. Right? And so what's the implication? The implication is as soon as you know a law, then you can break it. As soon as the law is in front of you, you have to fall on one side or the other. You're either going to obey it or you're going to disobey it. Does that make sense? And because the law is right there, clearly stated... God has every right to judge you on your decision. And there's the responsibility aspect of it. <clears throat> in other words, to my previous point, a command, in other words, the law of God, demands obedience and carries the very substance for righteous judgment with it. Why? Or to carry it a little further. <coughs> Excuse me. Because once you know God's law, you are now held accountable to it. That's that double-edged sword, right? That's the double-edged sword. A, a person who's mature says, I don't care about that. I'm going to fail. It's going to sting when I fail. I'll probably get disciplined for it. But I don't care because I can bring glory to God. I'm looking at the positive side of this. An adolescent always looks at the what? The negative side. What's going to happen if I fail? Because I feel like failing. What's the punishment like? How bad's the punishment? Can I hack it? You, you get what I'm getting at? 
Completely different mindsets, right? Completely different mindset. One, one's positive, one starts off negative. One lives a life of freedom, one lives a life of looking over their shoulder and scared and miserable. So it's the same basic concept that Paul uses in Romans 1. When he rails against the unbelievers who know the truth about God, know the right thing to do, and still choose to violate God's command to obey the gospel. It's the same idea. God says, believe, here's my command, believe, now that the command is in front of you, and my Holy Spirit has convicted you straight up, straight on, no doubt, light right on the gospel, you have to make a decision. And I will judge you righteously against that decision. And then that's what Romans 1 is. The second half of Romans 1 talks about the people who say, no, I'm going to disobey. I'm going to be counted with the sons of disobedience. And so Paul rails against them. But the idea, again, is that a command carries with it righteous judgment. That case, it's about the gospel. So what you should see, then, and what the Spirit's teaching you this evening, is how very consistent the Bible is. In other words, how simple it is to understand once you see the purpose of it. Once you understand that the gospel is actually a command, you see the fork, right? You see, you see the wheat and the tares, right? You see the obedient, you see the disobedient, you see the believers and you see the unbelievers because it like literally just carves a, a line right down the middle. It just says, here it is. You're going to fall on this side or you're going to fall on that side. Because I've laid down a command here. And I'm going to make sure you understand it in full light. I'm going to make you understand the gospel truth because my spirit's going to ensure that. And you're going to have to make a decision. And you can't play Sweden or Switzerland. Which one's the neutral one? Switzerland. You can't play Switzerland, right? Sorry, Sweden. Right? <laughs> of course, that might be a, I don't know. Anyways. But do you see how consistent the Bible is? As I mentioned on Sunday, the Bible's central theme is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and of course, His gospel. So if you understand this basic fact, then you have the key. Listen, you have the key to unlocking Holy Scripture at the deepest, most meaningful level. You have the key. If you get the gospel right, that's the key. Ask anybody, especially on their second time through the gospel reload, what they're realizing is that key has become even more obvious. I'm saying, oh my goodness, it's that simple. It really is. Once you see the gospel in its entirety and you accept it for what it is, including that it's a command, it makes a hard line right down the middle, but it's a good thing. Once you see it, the rest of the Bible, you read your Bible and you're like, this makes total sense now. Now I know exactly what Jesus was saying when he said X, Y, Z. Now I know exactly what Paul was fighting against when someone else was trying to say, no, it's works, you know, this kind of a thing. Uh, everything just falls into place when you get the gospel right. And that's why I just highlighted Paul's words in uh, Philippians 1.7. Philippians 1.7 re, uh, reads, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel. As I've taught you many times in the past, the epistles in the New Testament all have context. They all have context. And if you don't understand the gospel, I mean really understand it, understand it at its mo- in its most primitive form, which is actually simple, but, you know, we have to shed it off. It's like reverse, we're nuts, right? We have to shed off all the garbage to get to something so simple. But once you understand that very simple thing, you see it extremely clearly. You say, I see it. The entire time you read the book of Romans, you're like, I know exactly where Paul is. He's hovering around over here. Then he circles around over here. Then he's over here. And now he comes back over here. Now he's under here. Now he's over here. And he's basically fending off wolves. Or he's shining light back on the gospel. He says, you see, see this beautiful thing? That's the gospel. Whoa, you get away. Right? And then he puts his shield out. And says, get away. And he defends it. And he says, look how beautiful it is. You get away. (laughs) Right? And he goes back and forth. And you can see it because you have the gospel. Do you understand? And it's beautiful. And you just walk through scripture with the gospel in hand. And it's beautiful. And you just say, oh my goodness. Why haven't I seen this before? Probably because you had the gospel wrong. Someone either taught it to you wrong or you read it. You know, you got your, you got your doctrine from a television screen. I don't know. Who knows? But Satan's really good at giving us false doctrines. Amen? He knows, better than we do even, that if you can pervert the gospel, the rest of the, the, rest of the Bible doesn't even really make sense. Talk about frustrating. So, again, as I've taught you many times in the past, the epistles in the New Testament all have context. That's why I always recommend a good, solid study Bible. My recommendation still remains uh, MacArthur's study Bible in the, in the English uh, Standard Version, the ESV. If you can get your hands on a MacArthur ESV study Bible, do yourself a favor. It's like 60 bucks. If you're having a hard time, I'll pitch in. It's, it's a really good Bible because it's got, you know, the chapters, you know, it's got the, each chapter has an introduction right, with background and context. That's what I do when I come to a new chapter. If I'm reading my Bible and I come to a new chapter, I don't just go to verse 1-1. I actually read the intro so that I have the full context front of my mind. So when I start reading the book, I say, oh, okay, this makes more sense. Right? So it gives you chapter introductions, stuff like that. And then most verses have um, study notes down in the bottom margin. That guess what? You ready? Tie back to the context of the introduction. So that's a really good study Bible, and I would recommend it. Um, so anyways, when you read for context in the Bible, knowing that, as Paul expressed in Philippians 1.7, he was writing to either defend or confirm the gospel then everything absolutely falls into place because you have the key to understanding the Bible. You have the gospel, 
and you understand that you have to read the Bible with that gospel in hand, but with context. With context. There's always a context with the epistles, right? On the flip side, if you do what some Christians do, which is, and this is horrible, um, which is supplant the Gospels, you know, like the four books at the start of the New Testament, the Gospel books. If you supplant them with the epistles of Paul, let's say, supposing you find the full substance of the Gospel in the epistles instead, well, that's when you end up with a perverted version of the Gospel. I know people who will swear up and down they've got everything they need to know about the gospel in one New Testament epistle. And I say that cannot be true because those aren't Jesus' words. Is the gospel in there? You bet it is. Is it sometimes clearly obvious? You bet it is. But remember, in context, something's going on. Right? Even when you even if you know if the if the gospel is a rose bush, right? Even if you're over here and you're shining a light on it, you're still only shining on this much. The backside of the rose bush is dark. So you're still only seeing some of the gospel, so to speak, and which is okay because you're defending it or confirming it in light of the context of that epistle. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's how you think about the epistles. There were certain things going on in different churches, at different times. Remember, they were decades apart. At different times. And so the writer was addressing the church from a certain angle and defending the gospel from that context or confirming it from that vantage point, from that context. You don't get the whole gospel from a single context. How would you like that? If someone said, I met this person, I met you yesterday for five minutes, I know everything I need to know about you. But wasn't I like irate because someone just ran over my toe in the parking lot? Yeah, so, I know everything. You were, you were miserable, you're a miserable person. That's all I need to know. How would you like that? He said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Too bad, I'm done. Too bad, so sad. Right? <laughs> this is how you end up with perversions. This is how you end up with the perverted gospel. You get people hanging their hats on one epistle. Even if it's magnificent, like Romans. They just hang their hat on, the, on just Romans. And they say, don't even worry about the gospel. Throw out the red letters. That was a different dispensation, you see. Seriously? Hmm. The context of the gospel in the gospel books is just that. It's to establish the gospel according to Jesus himself. Imagine that, right? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and some people say, I don't want to hear from Jesus Christ. I'd rather take, I don't want to call it hearsay, but you know what I'm saying. I'd rather take something in an epistle out of context, spread it like peanut butter across the whole landscape, and call that my gospel. Because that one turns out to be a little easier. Right? I don't have to listen to Jesus say, deny yourself if you can't follow me. I don't have to listen to Jesus say, pick up your own cross or you can't be my disciple. <laughs> Those are pretty heavy words, aren't they? 
Yeah. Turns out that people that do that are looking for an easy way out. Sadly, someone might not even be saved, but that's between them and the Lord. So the context of the gospel and the gospel books is just that, to establish the gospel according to Jesus himself. The context of the epistles is typically a, some defense or confirmation of the gospel in response to a variety of situations, often attacks. You see the difference? So here's an analogy for you, and excuse me, or I apologize ahead of time if it's imperfect. Every, every human analogy is, so just bear with it. Suppose you owned a home in a nice neighborhood, and your neighbors were all nice, and so you'd sit on your front porch on sunny days, and, you know, you wave to everyone, hey, you know. But then one day, some evil invaders start attacking your home. So you purchase some heavy artillery. That's what uh, Don Parent would do, right, Ann? Yep, he'd probably pull out a howitzer. He'd go down to the junkyard or something. So I got a howitzer, and somehow we'd find ammo for it. So you purchase some heavy artillery, and you fortify the perimeter of your home with some barbed wire. So in summary, you know, you're a good person who's going to be nice when you can be, but you will also defend your turf when needed against attacks. Now, suppose a person walks by your house before the invasion. What might they conclude about you? Right? Oh, look at him. He's so, you know, happy. He must be the nice guy. What about after the invasion? <laughs> right? Got my war paint on. <laughs> right? What might they conclude about you? I want you to concentrate on something, though. Because it was kind of a trick question. I know you're so judgmental, that's why. You're like, oh, yeah. You know the righteous thing to conclude is? Nothing. Zippo. You shouldn't be concluding anything about that person on the porch. Not in that context, other than they will defend themselves or they'll wave. That's cool. But do you know them? You don't, you don't understand everything about their circumstances. And if, if you're the person on the porch who owns the house, they don't understand everything about your circumstances. Your life has context, just like the lives of those Paul wrote to in the New Testament. Theirs had context, too. So, if someone really wanted to get to know you, one of these passers-by, you know, they really want to get to know you personally, what's a much better option to consider? Well, I'd argue that the best option is to gain audience with you. Have a meal together or something like that and spend some real time with you. Not some passing glance, not some wave. You with you. That's the equivalent of reading the Gospels with all the red letters. You are spending time with Jesus specifically. You are getting to know Him through His own words. You're getting to know Him through His own words. Not when one of His warriors is on the front porch with a howitzer. 
Does that make sense? Because then you say, oh, he's a, you know, he's an awful God because all he does is shoot people down. He's mean, he's vicious, he's blah, blah, blah. No, he's a vicious defender. That's my God. I know him. But he's also the most beautiful lover. That's also my God. So far be it for me to make any judgments at all about him if I just take it out of context. So if you want to get to know Jesus Christ, you know, the one whose name is tied to the actual gospel, capital G gospel, then you read his words. However, when you read the epistles, you are reading either a defense or confirmation, typically, of him and his gospel. Do you see the difference? I hope so. I hope so. If you never spend the time in the Gospels to really understand Jesus firsthand, then you are relegated. I mean, you have no other real option, really, to try to piece the Gospel together through the epistles. In other words, you've got to read each Gospel. Hopefully, even if you do it in context, you're going to get some confirmation or defense of the Gospel. But like I said, it's maybe just one side of the rose bush. And then hopefully you can, you know, you kind of dance around and say, I think I've pieced it all together. Why not just go to Jesus? Find out what the gospel is, cling to it, and then when you read the epistles, it makes a whole lot of sense. Right? Right? Instead of judging, someone judging you on the porch for waving, oh, she's so nice, he's so nice, or, you know, he's so mean, he's so mean. Instead of doing that, Maybe if they knew you first, and they walked by and they said, oh, look at that, it's a good day, they're responding with integrity to the rest of the world, as far as it depends on them, be at peace. You know what I'm getting at? Or, there he is again with his howitzer, someone must be attacking him. Be ready to give a defense. Do you follow what I'm getting at? If you know the person in the house, on the porch, then you know exactly what's going on. And it makes total sense. And your, your idea, your concept of the person doesn't change, does it? If anything, it just gets stronger. You say, that's exactly what I would expect to have happen in that circumstance. He's a lion. I wouldn't mess with that guy or that gal. I wouldn't attack their gospel. Right? And if I, I know that if, 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 if I show them love, they're going to respond. Like, that's, that's them then all of a sudden everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes when you have the gospel in hand. All of a sudden, the New Testament just blooms. You say, oh my goodness, now I get it. Now I can see it. Now I know what Paul was doing. Yeah, he was a tenacious little bugger, but that's because he was motivated to defend the gospel. That's because, like we opened up with in Philippians, I think, right? Where he said, I just want you all to, to, to fall in love, to be in love. So, heck yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight from prison for you. <laughs> I'm going to fight tooth and nail until the day I die. And if you know Paul, then it makes total sense. Right? If you know Jesus, that's probably why he chose Paul as an under-shepherd. It's probably why he chooses most legitimate under-shepherds. 
And legitimate under-shepherds, if you get to know them, they make a whole lot of sense. If you don't get to know them, like some of you probably still don't, looking at me even, sometimes you think I'm crazy. Honestly. Or you think I'm a jerk. Or I'm a, whatever it is, right? I've had people that in my own house say, I can't stand you. Or I couldn't stand you back in the day. Do you follow what I'm getting at? Why? Because they didn't know who I was. They wanted to know who I was. They wanted, to, they wanted to draw conclusions about me. But they didn't really know me. All they did was make judgments about me based on certain contexts. You follow what I'm getting at here, folks? We can't do that to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to read the epistles with him in in. And just the fullness of him right in front of us always. So that when we see someone like Paul, that tenacious little bugger, right, being almost harsh, you're not saying, oh, that's because he was a harsh jackass. He was just, you know, he was just a, you know, he, he knew his doctrines, but he was just such a jerk. I don't think I'd like him. You know what? I'll take Paul every day, twice on Sundays over some pearly toothed curly-haired, greasy-faced... I don't mean to say that that wrong way. Because some people are like, hey, I have kind of oily skin. I don't stop. I'll take him any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Why? Because I know where his heart's at. Stop worrying about silly stuff. You know what I'm getting at? Stop worrying about the truth. Stop focusing on the gospel. Get that gospel right. And then when you read your Bible... It just blooms. It just everything. It's just so awesome. It's just so awesome. Um, again, if you never spend the time in the Gospels to really understand Jesus firsthand, then you are relegated to trying to piece the Gospel together through the epistles, which, if you're not careful, and if you fail to understand the context of each situation, you will eventually arrive at a false conclusions about Jesus. Uh, and therefore his gospel. You will. If you take things out of context without the substance of the gospel itself, you will arrive at false conclusions. Sadly, about Jesus Christ himself and his gospel. These are the basics I've been alluding to over the past few messages. Do you see how beautiful it is? If you understand the basics, everything else just is easy. It just makes total sense. You can go home and relax. You don't have to be insecure. Geez, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, I just don't know. I don't know what I read when I read the Bible. You don't have to have that worry anymore. Are there going to be things you read and you go, geez, I don't understand that word, or I don't understand the context? Sure. That's why we have to continually learn. But you're not going to be in that tangled estate anymore where the gospel doesn't like add up or the epistles seem a little bit, I don't know, contradictory or something. Um, the, the basics are, are really where it's at. We simply must get the gospel right. And also, whenever we read the New Testament epistles, we must get the context right. You've got to get the gospel right. And when you read the epistles, you've got to get the context right. Read that introduction. 
If you don't know it by heart, every time you go to that book, read at least read the background or something or the theme or something. Read something about that chapter that you're reading. Unless you're extremely well-versed in it. You, you know, you spend hours, like I do, spend hours and hours. I don't have to go to the intro every time. Um, unless you have some kind of grasp, some kind of a, gra you know, healthy, holistic viewpoint of that passage, um, be careful when you read it, because it's very easy to take things out of context, and you might do Jesus Christ bad. You might say, oh, that's kind of harsh. Well, that's kind of, you know, blah, or that's not this, or this is that. I don't, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. That's because you don't understand the context of it. That's why it doesn't make sense. I mean, even, you know, even the blogs that I write, they'll make sense if you understand where I'm coming from. So here's a key principle from Sunday's message regarding the gospel, turning the corner a little bit up here on the board, <clears throat> the simplicity of salvation. Not only is the gospel easy to understand and digest, it is also tied to a command to believe it by the one with exclusive rights on salvation, its intended result. That's the simplicity of salvation. It's a simple command. Believe. Given by the one who's able to save you. doesn't matter if some moron, some false prophet says, believe in me and I'll save you. You don't have the power. Jesus, you know, the Lord God actually has the power to save you. Right? What, is the, what did we read in our Bible last time? You know, fear him, the one who's able to put, not only kill, but send someone, sentence someone to hell. Don't fear the one that can just kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and sentence to hell. I say fear him. And that fear comes out of that one thing, that gospel decision, that command to believe. When it's a command, you either obey or disobey. There's no in-between. There's no Switzerland. Once that command has been laid down and you've been convicted, you are now held accountable before the holy God of the universe. He can sentence you to hell if he wants if you remain disobedient to that one command. According to the wisdom books, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, if this Lord commands you to do something, then you are held accountable to that command. Didn't, isn't that what we just learned? Yeah. Otherwise, you're disobedient for as long as you reject, your, uh, reject it, numbering yourself with the sons of disobedience. In other words, unbelievers. The conclusion, it's wise to obey God's command to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's true wisdom. As the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, this most often takes time. So God lays down the law. Thank God, right? Thank God he doesn't say in that moment, you got one shot at this, buddy. I just laid down the law. I told you what the gospel is. I know that you understand it because my spirit's right there enabling that understanding in that moment. Aren't you glad he didn't say, one and done, that's it? Aren't you glad he didn't say, decide right now here in this split moment, 
You see it, right? I do. Yes or no? Aren't you glad he gave you, like, do-overs? Yeah, that's called patience. Thank God for his patience. Because we would all be in hell. Amen? For real. We'd all be in hell. And truth be told, it wouldn't be unrighteous. Because we literally said no in full disclosure of the, of the gospel. Thank God for his patience. Whew. As the Spirit pointed out on Sunday again, while you're making up your mind <laughs> about this primitive of all commands, God waits patiently. Up here on the board, the Amplified, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, reads, The Lord does not delay as though he were unable to act, and is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is extraordinarily, extraordinary, extraordinarily, extraordinarily patient towards you. Like above and beyond. And <laughs> we can only think about patience from our own viewpoint, right? We're like, <sighs> you know, when someone's being a pill, you're like, ah, such a pill. What's your grounds for comparison? You. But you're a pill too most of the time. Right? So they're like a little lower than you on the totem pole of, you know, being a pill. And pretty much just that moment because tomorrow it's this way, right? Be like, oh, oh, this is such a pill. Right? I'm so paid. What if you were perfect holy God of the universe? Right? How much greater is his patience? How much greater does his patience have to be? So don't even think about it in your own mind. Like, oh, yeah, I understand. Extraordinarily patient. Do you, though? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I have, a, I have a kid at home, and I have to be extraordinarily patient with that kid. Do you, though? Relative to God with you? <laughs> right? Seriously. Relative to God with you. Here's the distance between you and your kid. Right? Here's the distance between you and God. I, don't, I can't do that high. Just keep going. Right? So don't even think about it in your own human terms. Think about it as infinite patience. It's, it's unbelievable, the amount of patience it takes to wait around while you basically go, eh, I don't think so. Right? First time he convicts you of the gospel, you're like, eh, I don't know. I'll think about it. What? You'll think of, what kind of patience does that take from the holy God of the universe? I can't put it into words. I can't measure that thing. So I don't know about you, but I'm really, really, really grateful for the patience of God. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Repentance. Turning away from your self-life. Because isn't that what you did? I see it, but I don't feel like it because I'm still in love with my self-life over here. I'm not ready to give up my self-life right here. I'm not ready to repent. So God waits around, not wishing for that jackass to go to hell, waits for them to repent and receive saving faith. I don't know about you, but I'm really, really, really grateful for his patience. How about 2 Peter 3.15 up here on the board? Amplified. 
and consider the patience of our Lord, His delay in judging and avenging wrongs as salvation, that is, allowing time for more to be saved. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote about, uh, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him by God. This was Peter writing. And then finally, Joel 2.13 in the Amplified. Rip your heart to pieces in sorrow and contrition and not your garments. Don't put on a show. Oh, I won't do that because then people will get all stumbling, right? Oh, I almost did it though because, you know. Oh, look, I'm just so disgusted. No, how about rip your heart to pieces in sorrow and contrition? Enough with the acting. Right? God sees the heart. Rip your heart to pieces in sorrow and contrition and not your garments. Now return in repentance to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. This is patience again. Abounding in loving kindness, faithful to his covenant with his people, and he relents his sentence of evil when his people genuinely repent. Oof. Do you get it? I don't know. I'm just so grateful. Um, I'm just so grateful for his patience. And uh, we're unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess that's enough for tonight. But we're out of time. Um, but please think about, he had a lot to say this evening. A really a lot of good things. Starting with the blog. You think about it. Ending with his patience. Some of you like could just put those two things together. Because this moron keeps having to say, will you please read the blogs? La, 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 I don't read the blogs. Really? Really? How about that for patience? God's trying to insert grace into your soul for your good, and you're like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Seriously? Just put those two things together. How patient he's with you on one that one little thing. <laughs> Repent. Amen? Repent. All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity and privilege of studying your word here together to fellowship this way as well. We're so grateful for all the grace and the love that you shower upon us each and every moment of each and every day. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.